Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, the crew is back in the book of Daniel, and here the guys will be having a discussion on Daniel chapter 10. We do want to remind you about our two upcoming Theopolis workshops. Those are online workshops that run for six weeks. We have one coming up on the topic of baptism with Alistair Roberts and another on Shakespeare's Hamlet with Doug Jones. For more information, including registration, you can find links in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 10. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alastair Roberts. Brian Motes is in the background uh, recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out everything so we can deliver this podcast to you. Uh, we're back together again after a couple of months hiatus. Uh, James B. John has been teaching a course for Theopolis, an online course uh, on the book of Judges, and uh, we didn't. he didn't want to pile up too much, too much work, so he uh, got a break from the podcast and we were devoted to other things over the last month and a half. Really great to have James back and uh, we're returning to our studies in Daniel, which we started a number of months ago and uh, it was part of a, a larger series of podcasts on the prophetic literature. Uh, and we're closing in on the end of the book of Daniel. We're going to be talking about Daniel 10 today and also in next week's podcast. Daniel 10, uh, Daniel has 12 chapters, and uh, so Daniel 10 is close to the end. And Daniel 10 is the beginning of the last section of the book of Daniel. So we're actually introducing the final lengthy vision that will occupy the rest of the book. Just a little bit of reminder about where we are in Daniel and how the book is put together. Uh, the book begins in Hebrew with a narrative of Daniel's exile with his three friends and uh, their early experiences in Babylon. Then uh, beginning of chapter two, it switches to Aramaic. And for a number of chapters, uh, the stories of Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel in the court of Belshazzar, Daniel in the court of Darius, those are all uh, written in Aramaic. These are incidents that are taking place in the larger world of the empire. And so they're written in the imperial language of the time, which is Aramaic. That Aramaic section ends with chapter seven, and then chapter eight through 12 is back to Hebrew. So we have Hebrew, Aramaic, and then Hebrew again. Uh, as far as the languages are concerned. Uh, as far as the content is concerned, chapter seven is a turning point, even though it's in Aramaic, so it connects with the previous section uh, of uh, chapters two through seven. It's also a, a vision of Daniel that prepares us for the, future, the later visions in chapters eight through 12. Um, in the early chapters of Daniel, Daniel is an interpreter of other people's visions, but beginning in chapter seven, he begins seeing visions uh, and he has interpreting angels sometimes to interpret the visions, but he's the one who is the seer that's different from what was happening in the, earlier in the book. Uh, and from chapters 7 through 12, we have a series of four visions. Um, there are two visions that take place during uh, Daniel's Babylonian period, the first two in chapters 7 and 8, uh, and then the last two visions in chapter, chapter 9 and then in chapters 10 through 12. Those are taking place during the Persian period. So we have a shift in time period. And we, we also have a shift in kind of the tone and the tenor of the, of the visions, the first visions that Daniel sees in chapters seven, and then in chapters, uh, chapter eight, those both involve uh, animal, uh, animal symbols. He sees a series of monsters coming up out of the sea in chapter seven. 
And then he sees a ram and a goat uh, battling it out in chapter eight. And that's a vision of Persia and the rise of Greece. But when we get to chapter, uh, chapter nine and through the end of the book, the last two visions, uh, we're, not, we're no longer having animal symbolism. It's uh, human words, uh, spoken words, instead of things that Daniel sees. Uh, and the, the, the bulk of what he receives is something that he sees. Uh, it's interesting that the, these two sets of two visions also parallel each other in terms of their location. In chapter seven, Daniel is in his home. In chapter nine, he's in his home and he receives these visions. Uh, in both chapters eight and in chapters 10 through 12, the second in each of the pairs of visions, uh, he's beside some kind of uh, uh, some kind of river. He's beside the Ulai Canal in uh, chapter eight, and he's beside the Tigris uh, here in chapters ten through twelve. So there's there's that kind of parallel too. Chapters ten through twelve do ten through twelve do form a single vision. We're going to split it up into a number of podcast episodes, but we'll keep reminding you that this is all one vision. Daniel, what we're look at today and next week is. Uh, Daniel's uh, initial vision of a of a angelic or a divine figure at the at the Tigris, uh, the initial encounter with that uh, with that angel seems to be with a couple of different angelic figures that he has an encounter with in chapter ten. Then a lengthy description of the coming events for for Israel in chapter eleven, and then chapter twelve closes that series of visions and closes out the book. Uh, but there are a couple of things that indicate that this is all one stretch of vision. Um, we have uh, various uh, uh, framing devices that we find in chapter 10 and then are repeated in chapter 12. Uh, Daniel is told that he's receiving a writing in chapter 10. And then at the end of the book, we're told, he's told to seal up the book because the vision is, pertains to uh, a long time in the future. Uh, he sees a figure above the Tigris or by the Tigris here in chapter 10. We'll look at that vision uh, in just a moment. Uh, and then that figure drops out of the picture until you get to chapter 12, when that figure reappears. And in 12 verses 6 and 7, we again have a man dressed in linen as the man was in chapter 10. He's above the waters of the river. Uh, and one says to him, how long will it be? And I heard the man who was dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time and so on. That's the same figure that's introduced at the beginning of chapter 10. So we have that figure that we find out in chapter 12. He's actually above the river, uh, not just beside it. But that, that figure is at either end of this, uh, of this uh, series of visions or this great vision. And that's another indication that this, that's a frame and inclusio around the visions. Uh, and then another thing that links it is this will get us into the content of chapter 10. But uh, chapter 10 is all about the distress of Daniel. He sees the vision. Uh, he falls on his face, he's distressed, he's without strength, uh, and then he's strengthened and he sees the vision of chapter 11. And what we find in chapter 12 is the, the weakening and the strengthening of Israel. So there's a kind of typological relationship between hap what happens to Daniel in chapter 10 that's going to foreshadow what happens to uh, his people later on. So that, again, is a frame that uh, uh, around chapters 10 through 12. I think it's worth thinking about the timing of this. It happens in the third year of Cyrus, which is likely 536 BC. And at that point, things would be a lot clearer. Babylon's fallen, Cyrus has given his decree. And as a result, many of the Jews had gone back to Judah and started rebuilding the temple. But at this point, it's quite likely that Daniel would have received news that the rebuilding had stalled. It faced the opposition from surrounding peoples 
and it did not seem to be getting underway again. And so maybe that is what spurs him to fast and fasting at a significant time. Presumably this is around the time of fast Passover and unleavened bread. It should be a feast, but he is dismayed by the news that he's received. And as a result, he's seeking to be strengthened by the word of the Lord. It raises the question, doesn't it, as to why Daniel didn't return? Yes, it does, James. And you're going to answer the question. You're going to answer the question, I trust. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just going to raise it. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, one one possibility is that he's in a position to provide a kind of backstop uh, in in Persia uh, for the re- re- returned exiles, which it turns out that they need. It's not clear that they need it at the beginning because Cyrus is supportive of the project. But it becomes clear very early, as Alistair said in Ezra, that uh, that um, they need a friend at court. Uh, and so him staying back might be a, a strategic play. Besides, he's like 90 years old. So um, that, that could be quite a quite a trek going back. What, what are your ideas, James? I, I didn't. I, I genuinely didn't have any, actually. But um, that, that sounds good to me. I mean... It, it strikes me as interesting that if you look at the people who we're told about in um, uh, in the post-exilic times, it's definitely not the case that the godly Israelites went back and the others stayed behind because, you know, we see people like Ezra and Nehemiah have to arise from positions of responsibility in Babylon to go back and sort things out in Jerusalem. So um, so I definitely don't see, see it that we should think he's acted wrongly in, in some way here. I think over this period after the exile, we see a shifting of the balance of the people as well. So increasingly, you have a great number of the people living outside the land. By the time of Christ, it's a significant majority of the um, Jews live outside of the land. And much of the culture and the um, leading thinkers wouldn't be within um, Judah at this time. And so it seems that This is a significant redemptive historical shift that's taking place. The people are being scattered among the nations, but not just in a negative sense. There's a sort of Levitical existence that they're living out as the priestly people, but now living in all these different cities of the nations, not having their own territory, but ministering to the nations concerning the law of God. And the vision of that is not merely one that results from judgment at the exile it's also one of the lord extending the influence of his people right which kind of underlines what peter was saying doesn't it i mean people like mordecai let's say or nehemiah were able to have a much greater influence on um, jerusalem's destiny it seems than its own its own residents yeah that's a great point uh, alistair then i think the you can see it as a one phase in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Israel is scattered out to the nations in order to bring the blessing of Abraham to the nations. And I think uh, I look at this a little bit in my uh, book on empires uh, between Babylon and Beast. The, the contrast between what happens in Egypt and what happens in Babylon, Persia is really intriguing. Um, you know, there's, a, there's resistance to, to Israel leaving Egypt. Pharaoh won't let them go until he's beat up pretty badly. But then the Lord stirs up Cyrus's heart and Cyrus lets them go freely, which is, uh, that's, that's not just a contrast. I think that's a marker of some kind of progression that the, the, it's a marker of the success of the Abrahamic 
of the Abrahamic promise that now the nations are actually listening to the word that comes from uh, that comes from the Jews. When we went through the book of Judges, I think Jeff repeatedly made the point that the Jews who the apostles encounter as they go out are exactly doing uh, doing exactly what people like Daniel and so forth were. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's an awful way of putting it. They were doing what they shouldn't be doing, basically. <laughs> they were um, uh, misleading the nations rather than doing the Nehemiah and, and Daniel type thing of, of guiding the nations. This is something new here in Daniel, this extensive description, not just description, but actually event of Daniel interacting with this man, this angel, or these angels, possibly two. The beginning here in the first verse, we're kind of taken back to Daniel 1, obviously with Belshazzar, his name. Uh, we're reminded that that was the name given to him by Nebuchadnezzar. And then also, of course, the fasting, which is um, a lot like Daniel 1. But unlike Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, you have this long uh, interaction, personal interaction between Daniel and these heavenly beings. I think probably, Peter, you mentioned this early on in the setup, that this is typological. What's, what's happening to Daniel is going to happen to Daniel's people. What happens to the head will also happen to the body. But I'm wondering what, to, what we think about the detail here of the interaction between Daniel and it's, it seems like we have a um, expansion or a elaboration of Daniel's role of Daniel's place of Daniel's positioning, even with regard to these heavenly beings, something we haven't seen before. Of course, before he's uh, lost his strength, he's even went into a deep sleep. Um, he's had to be revived, but uh, this seems to be a lot more, than what he's undergone in the past. Yeah. If I could just sharpen the question, this is not an answer, but just to, to dramatize the question more, I guess. This, this resembles scenes that we have of prophetic, uh, of prophetic calls. I mean, Ezekiel is, encounters the glory by a river. Uh, that's something similar to what Daniel is getting here. You have uh, Isaiah in the temple, and he sees the glory of the Lord and his lips are touched as Daniel's lips are going to be touched so that he can speak. There's angelic, there's angelic seraphim that are surrounding the throne. You know, it resembles the, the, uh, the original vocation, the calling of Jeremiah at the beginning of Jeremiah. So, yeah, the odd thing is the placement of that. You, you think that if we're going to see Daniel kind of called to prophetic office like this, then that's something that would occur earlier in the book when he begins to see the visions, you know, at the beginning of chapter seven, you might expect it to be, but it's delayed here until the very final vision. We could add to that list, Peter, the, um, the call of Paul, especially the way there are other people present, but they don't see exactly what Daniel stroke Paul saw. So there's, there's that parallel too. So maybe one obvious answer uh, is that this gives some weight, some added weight, some ballast to the coming prophecies, the coming visions here in 11 and 12, and makes you, I mean, you think that Daniel 9 was the big one, but after this, you're wondering whether 11 and 12 are just as important and maybe more significant for the history of Israel. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good comment. Um, the other thing that I, I think it may be relevant, <laughs> this again, is just a way of restating the question rather than an answer. But I, I, I've been curious, I've uh, long been curious about Isaiah. Um, 
the delay in Isaiah's call. You, you get, you, he goes, he's prophesying for five chapters before he's actually ever called to be a prophet. So that's, that's it's a similar kind of thing. You have um, the, the scene of the, uh, pro, a prophet given, being given prophetic stature. That comes later in the story than you would expect. You'd expect that, you could expect Isaiah 6 again to be at the beginning of Isaiah rather than five chapters in. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is going on here, and this doesn't particularly answer the call-related question, but I think, as we've probably hinted, Daniel is going to go through in figure what his people as a whole are going to go through in a number of specific ways. So Daniel struggles for 21 days, and by, by my count, there are 21 kings in chapter 11 who, who come to rise over the people of Israel. And um, just as Daniel kind of struggles to understand and kind of feels his weakness, I, I think that's what God's people as a whole are going to um, go through in that period. There's going to be a teaching and a refining, and it's going to talk about how the wise are refined and, and, and pruned and how the people as a whole feel their weakness. And so it talks about in chapter um, 12, their, their power being shattered and the pride of their power being um, shattered. So there's that sort of humility. And, and the whole thing in both cases is going to end with the rise um, of an angel. Um, and so in chapter 12 and, and at the end of chapter 10 here, an angel arises. And I think one of the interesting details is that immediately, as soon as the angel arises, the first thing that happens is that things get worse. You know, so for Daniel, he's struggling to understand. And then when he first sees the angel, it's worse. He passes out and he's been at the end of uh, a period of fasting anyway, and he's weak. And um, it's the same for Israel as a whole, it seems, or the people of God as a whole. So at the start of chapter 12, it says at that time shall arise Michael, uh, the great prince who has charge over your people. And then there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. So kind of it seems to me that there's a, a, a very parallel sort of conflict um, going on here. And obviously we could think of other leaders who go through a similar thing um, in advance of their people, Abraham to some extent, Moses to other, and, and so forth. Right. And obviously all uh, uh, typological, ultimately, uh, Jesus mm. is dead passing through death to new life uh, as as our head. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I think that it's worth reiterating that point that uh, uh, we'll, we'll look at this more uh, in just a few moments. But um, when, when the angel appears and begins talking to Daniel, it, uh, it the initial the initial effect is to uh, finish him off, as it were, uh, rather than immediately revive him. And I think that's a there's, some, there's important lessons in that. I want to go back to uh, Alistair's point about the fast. Uh, it's a fast that covers uh, Passover. So there's some kind of Passover motif that's running in the background of this. If we, if we take the first month as the first month of uh, the uh, Israelite liturgical calendar, I think that's probably the way that we should take it. That's the way that things are dated uh, in prophetic literature during the exile elsewhere. So he's, he's, he's fasting through the, through the period of the Passover. I also wonder about the, the length of the fast. It's three weeks. The number three seems significant. You have an association with death and resurrection. And then the specific things, he, he describes the fast pretty in, in detail in verse, in verse three. Uh, he doesn't eat any bread of 
desirability or pleasant bread, meat or wine, and then he doesn't use any ointment. And uh, one of the things that occurs to me is the association that all of those things have with the, with the temple. The temple is a place, is a house of bread for Israel. It's a place where uh, meat is eaten by the priests and then by people at the feast. They, they eat, drink wine and strong drink during the festivals on the outer courts. Anointing oil is part of the, part of the consecration of, of the temple. So it, I wonder if we're looking at Daniel kind of entering into the, uh, the bereftness of the temple. The temple is not yet built. None of these things are being produced by the temple. It's not, it's not yet a house of bread. Uh, the altar is standing by this time, I think, but the temple hasn't been built. So it's, it's not become a place of festivity. So Daniel seems to be identifying with the temple and the ruin of the temple by fasting from these specific things. Hmm. I wonder then, whether we're supposed to think also back to the first chapter, which is also the third year of the reign of a king, also mentions the fact that Daniel's name is given as Belteshazzar and also involves a fasting from special foods. Yeah, there, there's even a 10-day connection in a sense, isn't there? And there's 21 days here total, but it's basically a Passover in the middle, like the 14th of the month, and with 10 days either side, which feels like it could be significant. And then there's the connection immediately afterwards in verse five with his vision of a man clothed in linen, which is priestly garment. And so the whole um, <clears throat> likeness of this particular person is high priestly. It's very ironic. And that also connects with uh, Peter's point about the temple imagery here. Mm. And I think we have something similar to what we have at the beginning of Ezekiel with the appearance of the glory in exile uh, uh, beside, the, beside the canal, beside the Kibar, rather than back in the temple. And then Ezekiel is going to watch the glory leaving the temple and making its way over to, um, over to Babylon. So we're still, in that, we're still in that situation where um, if this is some version of the glory of the Lord appearing to, to Daniel, so the... the the angel of the Lord as, uh, as the chief, the priest above the priest, as it were, then it's st he's still in exile. He's not yet back in the house, serving in the house as, uh, as he will be when the temple's finished. The figure also seems to be clothed like a high priest, but clothed in preparation for the Day of Atonement. And it's been an important theme in the chapter so far, particularly the end of the preceding chapter, with the vision that talks about the atonement that's going to be provided. And maybe what we're seeing here is the figure that's going to provide that atonement and perform the ritual, as it were, of the Day of Atonement in its reality um, in completion of the vision of the 70 weeks. But yet that is not going to be performed just yet. But yet he sees in advance the one who will do so. Peter, you, you asked about the mention of weeks earlier, of, of why we've got three weeks here. And um, thinking about what Alistair, Alistair has just said, I wonder if part of this is to remind us of the 70 weeks, because really what's happening here is the start of the unfolding of those weeks in that Daniel had presumably or could have thought in chapter nine, you know, Jeremiah's 70 years are coming to the end. This is going to be the time of restoration this is when everything in israel um is put right 
And the force of the whole 70 weeks vision is to say, oh, actually, you can have to wait a lot longer than that. And um, it feels like in chapters 10 to 12, that sort of long wait, that great conflict is starting to unfold. And, you know, things haven't worked out perfectly at the end of the 70 years, which is why the temple hasn't been finished and why Daniel is now um, not feasting, but but fasting. And so it feels like there's a, a connection with the weeks. This is where Daniel starts to sort of live out the consequences that it's not going to be an immediate quick restoration, but it's going to take longer and take a different shape to what Daniel had thought. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, I wanted to also connect to uh, Alistair's last comment about the Day of Atonement with what we're talking about with the, with the fasting. And he's, he's fasting at the time of Passover, which is not a fast period, but then the this figure appears all in linen, which is the uh, is the uniform for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is a fast day. So even though it's the first month rather than the seventh, uh, Daniel is observing the Passover as if it were atonement. You have this kind of conflation of those two, of those two um, appointed times, as it were. Um, the the figure himself, uh, given an, a complex description of his his body, his face, his eyes, his arms. Uh, the sound of his words, the, the, the description ends up focusing on uh, the sound, which is like the sound of a host uh, or of a, uh, of a, of a, of a multitude, so, uh, like the sound of the hubbub of an army. Uh, but obviously this resembles the description that we have later in, uh, in uh, Revelation, in Revelation 1, when Jesus appears to, to, to John in his glory and uh, he's described in a similar kind of fashion, kind of head to toe. It's a, it's almost a kind of a, a, a blazon, a poetic form where you're describing. Uh, it's a, the Song of Songs does this a couple of times. We have a description of a beloved one who's described from head to toe and back. And you have the same kind of style being used here and also in Revelation 1. The one, uh, there's a couple of specifics that uh, Jesus' feet are like polished bronze, and his eyes are like flames of fire. So that's there are two specific descriptions that link with the, the revelation of Jesus in uh, in Revelation 1, uh, apart from, in addition to the, the general form, which is, resembles Revelation 1. Peter, you, you mentioned when we looked at chapter 2 and the Colossus there, you mentioned that it was dealt with in terms of seven um, specific body parts, which I made a note of somewhere, but I can't find out. Oh, here, here it is, the head, chest, arms, middle, stroke waist, um, thighs, legs, and feet. And we've got a sevenfold description here um, of, of the figure, the waist, the body, the face, the eyes, the arms, the legs, and then finally, I guess, the words, which we could say is the, is the mouth, and, and a number of other similarities, the, the use of metal and so on. And I wonder if this is meant to be in some ways like a perfected um, version of that initial figure that we've met in, in Chapter 2. Yeah, and that would link up with the things we've been talking about with the temple associations, the priestly associations. The priest is a kind of human form of the temple. His garments resemble the curtains of the tabernacle. Uh, he's he's a uh, he tabernacles among the people, as it were. Uh, so there's those those connections between house and person that are built into the temple and tabernacle system. We took uh, at least one option when we talked about Daniel too was that it's describing this imperial structure as containing the, the uh, materials of a temple. 
So this figure would be would have a similar kind of priest temple. Uh, he would combine the priest and temple in one in one uh, one being, uh, which is this uh, angelic priest figure. I don't know if there's anything to this, but in verse ten, it's always struck me as odd that, well, verse nine, <clears throat> he goes into a deep sleep and face to the ground or face to the land. So it seems like he's prostrate on his face. And then in verse 10, a hand comes out and touches him like the hand that comes out from the, from the vision. And I think it's Ezekiel two uh, sets me trembling on my hands and knees. So he goes up to a position where he's on his hands and knees. And it's almost like a beastly position. It's almost like a beast there, uh, not a man until the man then speaks to him and calls him greatly loved or greatly desired. And finally, he stands up and uh, like a man, although trembling uh, later. And that progression just is interesting from on the ground, then to a beastly position of hands and knees, and then finally standing up. Yeah, it's, it's rapid evolution. He begins, he begins on the ground, he becomes an animal, and then he turns into an upright human being. Yeah, it, it certainly, it seems, I just think back of Daniel 4, too, with Nebuchadnezzar and what happened to him, although, obviously, this is not the same kind of uh, process that's going on with Daniel, but it just, there's some similarities. Yeah, I, I have the same thought that this is kind of a, he's, he's rising from the ground, going uh, a kind of momentary bestial stage and then to an upright man, or kind of a human progression too. I mean, he's rising up, he's on his hands and knees like an infant, and then he's raised up to become, uh, he's reborn to become a man standing before the Lord. That's, that's good too. That's maybe even better. I think the, the reaction of uh, the men who are with Daniel in verse 7 is intriguing. Uh, and particularly, if, if I think of this again in connection with Revelation 1 and the, the vision that John sees of Jesus. And that connected with the vision that Paul sees on the Damascus Road. Paul sees uh, the vision of Jesus when he's accompanied by other people who do not see the vision, which is just what Daniel says here. They don't see the vision. They become afraid. Paul is in kind of a Daniel position. Uh, and uh, John is in a similar position, although he's alone when Jesus, Jesus appears to him. Uh, but that um, uh, suggests an encounter, with the, again, with the angel of the Lord, uh, angel of Yahweh, who is uh, the old, old covenant appearance of the of the second person. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of the glory of the Christ that Daniel sees, and also maybe throws some light on what's going on with Paul. Uh, we, you know, that's obviously a, a call to apostolic ministry, uh, but in the light of Daniel ten, perhaps we there's an overtone of uh, an encounter with the glory that means it's a call to prophetic ministry too. We could maybe connect that with other episodes where people who witness some visionary phenomena are marked out in some way as prophets or it's in some other way a sign of their prophetic ministry Could think about the way that elijah says to elisha that he will receive the um, double portion if he sees him being raised up there's this um condition that's attached that he needs to see these visionary phenomena and those aren't things that everyone would see. Later on, um, Elisha asks that the Lord open the eyes of his servant to see the 
chariots and the horsemen that surround them on the mountains and protect them. And they're there, but they just can't be seen by the servant. And then in the story of Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist and Jesus see the heavens opened and the spirit descending in the form of a dove. But it seems that that was exclusive to them. Other people who were present at the scene would not have seen it. Although, as we see here, there can be a sense of something having happened, a sense of dread, perhaps people responding um, as Saul's companions did on the road to Damascus, or people, as in John's gospel, wondering whether it thundered or an angel spoke to him. They don't fully know what's taken place, but they know that something has happened. I wonder if a lot of that is, again, meant to foreshadow what is going to happen in chapter 11's vision, in that Israel are going to go through these remarkable times, and presumably everyone is going to know something. Uh, Earth-shattering is happening, um, but only a few are going to see, you know, only those with eyes to see and prophetic insight like Daniel are going to realise the import and the angelic powers and principalities guiding the whole thing. There's a prophetic dimension to the angel's uh, speech to Daniel as well. I mean, uh, I'm talking about prophetic vocation of being a counselor and an advisor, because in that speech, Daniel's told that um, he, that is the angelic messenger, has come to him because of uh, the words that Daniel has spoken. Um, So verse 12 um, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> Daniel's Daniel's petitions, his prayers, his advice to the Lord has been heard as a good prophet, but also, again, coming back to Daniel being an encouragement and a sign to Israel this should mean something to them during the times of trouble that are going to be outlined in 11 and 12, that they also, like Daniel, will petition, will pray, will humble themselves before the Lord, and their words will be heard, and the Lord will come to them just as he came to Daniel. Yeah, a great great point. I think I want to add that uh, add to that what James said earlier. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, emphasize this. Uh, the angel is responding to Daniel's word. He's answering a prayer, but the immediate the immediate effect on Daniel uh, seems to be the opposite of what Daniel's looking for. Uh, he's already weakened by three weeks of fasting, and then when the angel comes, whatever strength he has left, which can't be very much, is gone. That's said twice in verse eight. Uh, My strength left me. I retain no strength. Uh, you have this description of his natural color turning to a pallor. That's the same phrasing that's used back in chapter five when uh, Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall. Um, his, his, he, he's goes, but it's, it's an even stronger phrase. It, it, the the, the uh, phrase connotes destruction, not just loss of, you know, it's not just his face has gone white, but his, his, his splendor, his glory has completely uh, been destroyed. And then he falls down as, uh, as James said, um, when he hears the words, uh, he he collapses to the ground and, and falls into a deep sleep. And as James Jordan has reminded us, I don't think this is the specific word that's used in, in Genesis 2, but it's uh, a, a related idea that you have a, a sleep that's close to death, a kind of coma state. So the first effect is for Daniel to be undone 
when the Lord shows up. And um, that's a, that should be an assurance to Israel too, in a kind of backwards way. You know, it's, it, they're, think about them in, in exile, hoping for the restoration of the temple, hoping for the restoration of Israel and the land. They're praying for this. All that's happening is opposition. The people of the land are resisting them. And seem, things seem to be getting more in, the resistance seems to be getting more intense and attempted to think, well, that means that God has not acted and he's not answered our prayer yet. Um, and the experience of Daniel shows that the, the, the answer to the prayer, uh, the first effect of the answer to the prayer is actually to remove all strength and then to restore him. So to take him from weakness to something near death. And then once he's down on the ground, then the Lord will raise him up. Uh, and that, again, is exactly what will happen to Israel. And I think, you know, pastoral, uh, plenty of pastoral uh, insights we can get from that. People going through various kinds of uh, tribulation, and they think the Lord has abandoned them. And sometimes, or, you know, think about or even political situations where we think, uh, you know, when, when are things going to turn around? When, are, when, are, uh, when is the Lord going to hear the, the, righteous, the, the blood of the innocent children that have been aborted? When is the Lord going to respond to that? Uh, and it just seems to be getting more intensely worse at times. But that's not a sign necessarily that it's getting worse. When the Lord comes near, things begin to happen. But sometimes the immediate effect is uh, is destruction before the restoration. This is not the first time that this has happened. In chapter 8, verse 18, there's a very similar response to a vision, falling into a deep sleep with his face to the ground. And then he's touched and made to stand up. And maybe we're supposed to see... Um, some reminder of the story of Genesis chapter two with the creation of man, the spirit put into man, raised up from the earth to stand up and then later will be equipped to be animated and to speak um, in a new way. There's a sort of death resurrection, but also recreation that's taking place. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.